0: join me in disgraceland available right now wherever you get your podcasts rock-a-roll up.
1: like i have a young person that works with me it's really sweet and i was talking about records and we were go- he was helping me move records and, and i was like oh this is this and this is this and this and he's like how do you remember all these songs like how do you remember all this like you seem to know like all this music and, and i was like oh Well, I don't, like, you don't really care about music, I said. And I didn't even think about it. I just said, like, you're not, you're not like a, it's like, I, yeah, I care about music. I like music. And I was just like, I don't know how to say this, but you don't really like, and I'm not saying anything negative about it. It's just like, how often when you listen to music, do you get chills? Like, what's the percentage in your life? If you've heard music that gave you chills, made the hair stand up in your arms. And he's like, that's happened to me before. I'm like, yeah, but that happens to me most of the time.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you our first curious creature. James Murphy, founder, LCD Sound System. James, how are you? We've, we've only met once and it was quite...
1: Quite sweet, backstage at a festival.
3: It was the tea in the park, I think.
1: Yeah, it was... I mean, my brain has become a thing that doesn't remember... I, I can't discern festivals. I can't tell which ones they are because they are <laughs> they're, they're, they're like shopping malls. Yeah like it could be you could be in Portugal or South America or Japan or and it's like it's the track and the trailer yeah. and the backstage bit and then the sound of a dance tent from inside a trailer yeah. which is just <laughs> as it vibrates on the floors, <laughs> but it's not even the beat it's not even a, it's not nothing solid it's like
3: so all the rivets in the bus get yeah. loose It's like a,
1: the loudest iPhone vibrating phone call that sure. never stops
3: yeah. right did I was it did I hear James that you um, always started the set with an instrumental or something?
1: Yeah, yeah yeah so I used to set up the stage and run the monitors in the beginning so we'd set up we didn't have crew when we started, and so like I'd set everything up. Like I'm a technical person and I was a touring front of house engineer and a touring monitor engineer. Um, like I was crew, like that's what I sort of did for a living for a long time. So, and we started kind of in this weird place where we didn't play any shows. Um, and then we got this show, it was like a pretty big show in London. And that was our first show. So we flew over and played our first show. We, We never played in New York. We never played around or gigged or anything like that. We just suddenly had a gig in London. I put together a band for the weekend. A friend went and played. Wow! And then that just kind of parlayed into show, show after show. And pretty, pretty quickly, we were playing festivals, and we don't really have. It was at the time when we didn't have them in the U.S. Really, like that wasn't a thing here. We'd have like Lollapalooza once. Yeah. And then we went to Europe, and it's just like festival after festival after festival. And so we didn't have money for a, a, a monitor engineer. We had a mix engineer, and I would we play a song that had no vocals for the first ten minutes and I would mix the monitors, and then I would go out and sing. Um, So I had to set everything up exactly the way I wanted. Like I had like arm pacings. Like I needed to be able to touch Pat's cymbal and Nancy's keyboard where I stood. I knew that if I couldn't touch both of those. And if you ever let a crew set us up, they'd give me a lot more room. I'm like, I don't want any room. I'm not going to do anything. (laughs) I'm not going to be dancing around. Like it's just like, I need to be confined by all the sound. Uh, and it's still that way. We've expanded and expanded and expanded. But what happens is, like, we go to a rehearsal space, and I set it up, right? And it walk around, and I'm like looking, and everything's going to be aimed at my head. And I'm like, okay, tape it. Right. Like, we roll out a big carpet, and we tape it. And the carpet gets cut into into the sizes of rolling platforms, and then that's it.
3: Is it is it is this dedication, or is it the some kind of control freakery going on here?
1: I think it's for me. I just like. I can't communicate that well verbally, uh, and I'm not good at disappointing people. I don't like it very much. It really upsets me. So it's easier for me to go do it myself. Hmm. Right. When I was an engineer and somebody would be like, sounds bad. I'm like, "What? should I turn the good knob up? Like, what can I do? What do you mean it sounds bad? And so I just do it myself because I've done those. There's almost no jobs in a venue that I haven't done. I've been a bouncer. Um I was never a bartender, but I was a bar back. I've been a bartender. You did a bartender? Yeah, one night.
3: One night only. Yeah. No nobody paid for a drink in Eric's Club in Liverpool. One night only. Yeah, they found me asleep at the end of the night on the floor. Everybody was really happy that night.
2: Yeah, I bet.
1: I have two little questions for you yes. guys that are both about as an American, both about Englishness. Yes. Also about generation, generational stuff. One, the English thing I noticed that when I read about interviews with British bands, and this is from the who like Ford, right. I think young British people at an earlier age had a much more intense sense of the impending doom of their lives than American kids did. What I mean by that is like, there's a lot about like a 16 year old being like, I don't already want to be down the pub. I know I'm going to get a job I'm stuck in for my life at 16, which to me, American is very different. Like Americans had a lot more time to be children. Right. Um, I think because we had less of like a a, less of a structured class system. Yeah. We didn't have that sense of like doom quite yet. It took longer for it to sink into us, which I think the disadvantage of being British and the advantage both were that you knew the doom early.
3: Right. So like we we were born with the doom.
1: Right. You, like, I kept, I just keep, I kept reading it. They're like, Oh, when I was, when I was 15, I was like, I know I'm going to get a job and get married and have kids. And I'm like, so I got to go crazy now. That's why I went dancing to Northern soul and doing speed. Right. You were 15 and you were like, I'm going to have a kid in a minute. I better get my party on. Uh, like, <laughs> Whereas so it's like this the opposite American would be like yeah. 28 and be like, yeah. oh, don't I grow up, I'm gonna do something else, you know. It's funny because I see I see both sides of it.
2: My son, you know, is like twenty-eight now, he's gonna be twenty-nine. That revelation that like he had to do something, you know, different didn't come like you said, to he was like in his mid twenties and suddenly it was like out of a bolt out of the blue. Yeah. But but for us back at the end of the seventies. We did things to change things because we thought that that was a way forward. We were doing things because we were like, "Hey, we don't know if it's going to be the end of the world soon, and we've got to do something." so it was more the impetus was more, well, we don't know if we're going to die tomorrow, so let's just do something. Let's just activate something.
3: yeah we in the northwest, just outside Liverpool, where it was like ten miles down the street, was Wigan Casino. Oh, yeah. yeah the, the birthplace of Northern Seoul, the all-nighters. Yeah. My brother-in-law, who, you know, my sister's older than me, he told me about, they used to go down the road with these, like, wh- white penny collars, you know, yeah. paper-collared things. And the first thing they'd do is get on the dance floor, rip the collar off, you know, like, <laughs> fling it. And I imagine there was a bit of speed going on, but he never yeah. talked about that because they didn't talk about drugs to younger people like me. Uh, I had to find out.
1: That brings me to my second little question, which is, Hmm. I have this theory about like the weirdness of the cultural moment we're in, in that like there's been more music released since two thousand than there was since the dawn of time to two thousand. Like, it's like we're in this kind of like end times of output, and that brings me to this time like around punk starting, everybody had it seemed a variety of influences, but most people seem to like Roxy Music. If you met someone, they're like, "I like the Stooges and Roxy Music." You're like, "We can do this." Like that. Right. Like you could be like, oh, "I like T Rex and Bowie and the MC Five and the Stooges and the Velvet Underground." You're like, "Okay, great." Like we're in a band. Mm-hmm. There was something I always find something beautiful about that. Like sim- like that simplicity of influence of like those are really dense and different things out of which like almost anything can happen.
2: Right. When we started back in the, the late 70s, there weren't that many people doing things new, it seemed. I mean, you know, punk came along and that gave us the impetus to do stuff. But I realized a lot of our sort of influences gave little shades to us, like Roxy Music. You know, I hear things from them that I know that we copied, not the, the style, but the intent was there. So that, that made it a lot easier to manufacture something new rather than just go over the old things again?
3: Two things. I think there was a conscious decision to leave behind the stuff that had gone before, the things we'd kind of come to put music on a pedestal. Um, But we were certainly striving for some kind of uniqueness. Um, Maybe it it happened just because of uh, our inability (laughs) <laughs> to recreate what we'd what we'd love to hear, or maybe it was our attempt at recreating what we'd you know grown up with listening to
1: um and I feel like the moment now is so intense with like how much stuff there is to kind of like wonder what you're listening to, and it's very difficult to do something I feel new because. I had a did a talk a long time ago in a weird way. At the same time as Brian Eno, you know, like Brian Eno did a talk, and then I was part of a panel afterwards. Separate thing. But one thing he said that I thought was kind of amazing. He's like, he said it was like it was kind of easy to be new at his time because he was like he was hearing all these like avant garde composers, but he was also in Roxy Music. Yeah. And like, you just had to be the first person to be like, what about these things together? Like, like, and everyone was just like, ah. <laughs> like, <laughs> inconceivable. You know, like, 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 there were these moments. There's these, in, these interesting historical m- vectors where newness had so much power. Yeah, but I think because of the churning out of in, of music, the removal of technological barriers. Yeah, like a kid right now can make a track with like an infinity of reverberation spaces and any synth in the world. There's no dominant context. There's no, gone is the day of like, well, records from Motown sound this way because they had the funk. They they had these drummers, and they, this was the drum set, and they used that mic, and nobody knew how they did that, and that's what those. Records were like.
2: Yeah, it's true. It's true. Like the the limitations that we all had, you know, no internet, no 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 way to to make the sounds that we we wanted. So we had to kind of deal with what we, what we had it was much smaller i think in 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 that way so therefore you know we were allowed to mature out in the woodshed instead of being under this constant pressure to get something that's going to do something and go somewhere and poke its head up amongst the uh you know rest of everything uh,
3: sometimes m- limitations they were like imposed on us you know just the time available you know, had to get like Several, you know, three tracks done, three songs written and recorded and mixed over a weekend. So, uh, quite a lot of the time, the situation dictated the, the, way, the way things came out. So, might have started off as uh, a limitation of ability, but then it became <laughs> endless uh, limits imposed on you, if you like. You know, let's get it done yesterday.
1: But I think also, like, you have. If you have these limitations, you're free to just constantly try to do something new. Yeah. If the world because it's not easy to do, it was really hard to think of a new way to do something. Yeah. And in fact, if you go back and listen to the records like from that era, at the moment when they would come out, you'd be like, I remember I'd get a new record by a band I liked, either one of your bands. Did he just say he loves us? I think he did. (laughs) And I'd be like, Fucking hell! This sounds totally unrelated to the last record. Like, yeah. Yeah. like suddenly we're like this giant swarming like dazzle comes out. It's just like everything's like giant and reverberant and psychedelic. And before it was so knife edge and so like brittle and you know like what happened here. And now I go back and listen to them, and they are actually in some ways also baby steps. There's a real, there's these really through lines that make them like not such big leaps in some ways, where they must have seemed like terrifying chasms at the time. The limitations, like right now, if someone said, if I said to myself, I'm going to do something completely different, what would hold, why not just all just be completely like drum and bass or, or like, you know, like there's no, there's no, there's no thing to, there's no membrane to push against either technology and in some ways either, or culturally, because what was once a very stiff and rigid like conservative culture that you push yeah. against. And all you had to do was push a bit and it would, right. your hand would go right through and you'd be a weirdo. Yeah. But I find now that now everyone thinks they're cool. <laughs> like yeah. everyone thinks that they're cool and they have good taste and they're, they're they, they, they like, there's nothing beyond what they like.
3: Wow. It, it seems that what they don't have is the melting pot is the the big cauldron right i'm thinking now that most people will never experience the, the the situation we had where we went into abbey road studios and there was a a team of people constantly tweaking the studio right the guy the guys had endless experience and what they were doing it was kind of going this is not working let's just rip this thing out of the desk i'll put that one in because i know it works and then they'd end up with a, a hybrid sort of build that would got got us through the session, and call for, and suddenly got this amazing drum sound. And going like, "Wow, let's just keep that," you know. Yeah. The, that that doesn't exist. I'm thinking, oh well, am I being romantic and uh, nostalgic, or is it actually real that we're losing something that's
2: tangible? Yeah. I think now maybe there's so much coming in at any one time.
3: Mm.
2: You know, nothing's new. Uh, is it? Is it that music
3: and live performance have simply lost their appeal?
1: I mean, I definitely think music is just less important now.
2: Right.
3: <laughs> it, it, mm.
1: I mean, it, it's less important to people. I mean, when I was a kid, you you the only thing you had that you spent money on was music. I, you didn't buy anything else. Like I didn't own anything. Else. Like I had, you know, I got shoes and clothes for school. Yeah, and I had. Book- like I had books and you know if I played a sport like I could get the special shoes for that sport or yeah but basically you just didn't own anything I my I rode my brother's I'm the youngest of four I rode my brother's bike yeah you, you know what I mean like you just didn't own stuff and I don't it just wasn't really germane like holiday would come around and they'd be like well here's some little toy cars or whatever nothing fighting for your money and your attention
2: well that frees you that you, right
1: it also defines you in a bigger way. music was was the defining thing, like I have a young person that works with me It's really sweet, and I was talking about records, and we were go, he was helping me move records and, and I was like, Oh, this is this, and this is this is this and he's like, How do you remember all these songs? like how do you remember all this? I'm like, What do you mean? And he's like, Well, like there's all these records like how do you remember like you seem to know like all this music and, and I was like. Oh, well, I don't like you don't really care about music, I said. And I didn't even think about it. I just said, like, you're not, you're not like a it's like I yeah, I care about music. I like music. And I was just like, I don't know how to say this, but you don't really like, and I'm not saying anything negative about it. It's just like, how often when you listen to music do you get chills? Like, what's the percentage in your life if you've heard music that gave you chills, made the hair stand up in your arms? And he's like, that's happened to me before. I'm like, yeah, but that happens to me most of the time. Like I'm from a generation where like music was who you were. Right. Like I cared about it; it was the most important thing to me. You, you define yourself it's like this is what I listen to. Like fucking, you listen to your bullshit. This is what I listen to. Like me and my friends listen to the good music, and you listen to shit. <laughs> it was like super aggressive. That's
2: really like. right. It did. It did define us that much more because I don't know what what I got from music in the, the beginning was a, a way to transcend my my everyday existence. Something in the music, something in the lyrics came together and it was like that moment where you read a line in a book and it it completely changes your worldview just for a you know, even if it's just for a minute or two. Mm. And that's what I looked for in music. You know, every time I could do that, so my the whole of summer vacation, the whole of summer holidays at school was in my bedroom playing those records that did that for me, that that helped me transcend my existence you know and so when we came to make music that's what I was looking for yeah right.
1: was anti-loneliness for me like music cured loneliness because you'd be like there are people out there and I don't mean it like I didn't think that I didn't put a record on be like there's people out there that are like me (laughs) like I didn't think that but you felt it like you felt like this thing that like separated you from the people around you and the drudgery around you and like made you feel like I need to go There.
2: When we first came to America, I remember it distinctly uh, thinking that as I stepped off the plane in New York, that everybody was going to be driving around in Cadillacs with uh, long horns on the front of the hood of the car. And everybody would be wearing 10-gallon hats and things. And it wasn't like that at all. My fantasy was vastly different than the reality. What was it like for you, James, when you first came to the UK?
1: I, I had a great awakening. I had a, in my school, I grew up in like a pretty farmy town in New Jersey. And there was a trip to England, Ireland, and Scotland. And you could save up money, you could, do, you could raise money. So I worked, like I worked in jobs. It was, like, it was like literally like 10 days of the, the aisles. And at this time, I'm listening to an enormous percentage of British music. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm going to go and, like, it's going to be just amazing. When you get there, going to be music in the streets. Like, the way people feel when they first come to New York. Like, like I'm going to get to New York. It's going to be kids break dancing on the corner. And, like, yep. he's going to be walking around playing punk shows? It's going to be fucking amazing. You get here and you're like, oh. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, and I, at the end of the trip, a friend when I got home was like, so. You know, did you see a lot of stuff? And I'm like, no, I, I now understand what those people were making music against. <laughs> <laughs> I got there and all I experienced was fucking pubs and thugs. And like I experienced yeah. like, a lot of sort of like the opposite of what I expected. I experienced like just the shit I grew up with, but with a different accent. Right, right. It was just a wake up call like, oh, it's not you're not in the wrong town. Like there's nothing wrong with where you are. Like you just need to find literally the individuals.
2: Did that trip give you the impetus for it then to, to start finding those people?
1: It was too late. I was born in the town I was from and I was a, a, a real weird combination of not very adventurous and really dissatisfied. Okay. I didn't even, it didn't occur to me to leave. Right. Like after I graduated from high school with every opportunity to go to college, I didn't go. I stayed in my town i was gonna make music i was like i'm not gonna go to college i want to stay here and make music i didn't have a studio i had a shitty job i was kickboxing like i was just really narrow-minded and and then i finally after a year and a half i went to i moved to new york and then right but then i proceeded to just be really it was the 90s and it was just a really boring time i i feel like it was a very boring time musically in, in america so what,
2: so what changed it for you what got you from there to here
1: well, I mean, I've been making... I put made a record in 1987, 88. I made a record out. Right. Um, which I manufactured myself and learned the hard way that that's, like, without a community, you are literally throwing rec I really made boxes of records that I held on to and then threw in the garbage. Like, it was, like, without a community to, to like... I didn't understand that people have communities. Like, I didn't really understand how it worked because I was so alone. Right. And then New York, I was in... The, just all I was aspiring to was I just wanted to go go along. I'd been a singing guitar player and I'd been like a bit of an egomaniac. And I got, I kind of just got humiliated and I was just like, I need to just take this all down a notch.
3: Yeah. So the thing that links us here, which not a lot of people know is drums, right?
1: Yeah. I had a girlfriend who wanted to learn how to play bass and start a band. And I, I was like, I'll, I'll help you find people to play with, and of course, got fifty guitar players and zero drummers. Yeah. So I said, "Well, I'll try to play drums for the tryout." And so I'd been in bands my whole life, but I'd never like really played drums. I knew what they should sound like. I think that helped. <laughs> I, mean, I think that, it's like if you're like I know what a drum beat should sound like. So yeah. And so I was like, oh, so I just became a drummer, and I was like, this is good for me. I'm going to turn off the kind of like controlling ego stuff the singing guitar player in me had. I'd been a kickboxer and studied martial arts. And I was like, that was the first thing in my life that I was like, it's okay to suck. I liked being a white belt. And then I liked learning and growing. Right. And I think drums were the first thing to me that I was like, I'm accepting that I'm not good at this. I can accept my white belt status. And then Hmm. I'll learn a new technique. And suddenly I got my new belt. Like, oh, I can, I can open the hi hat with my foot. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I get a little like stripe on my, you know, like I get a little merit badge and like I can do a thing that I couldn't do before. All these things were like merit badges to me.
3: Yeah. I'm
1: proud of this development.
3: This is all, this is psychology going on here.
1: Totally. And, yeah. and and I learned to be a good engineer and be like, really like, I'm the front of house guy and I'll drive the van and I'm gone. I'm like a guy who's no longer the artist. I'm the technician, and I'm working on my drums, and, and I got so much satisfaction from that.
2: Wow, lol, that was good. It was, wasn't it? It was amazing. In fact, it was so good, I think we're going to have to continue this one next week.
3: Let's continue the conversation. Tune in next time. James Murphy, LCD Sound System. Lol, it's that time of the show when we're going to answer some curious questions from the fans. Do we have fans?
2: (laughs) Apparently so. They've written a lot of (laughs) questions, that's for sure. So we have a question for you, Budgie, from uh, Pete Martin somewhere in the UK, mm. and, and he says, Hi, Budgie. Hi, Pete. How did you get the Slits gig? You didn't have a huge CV at that time. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh.
3: Right. Well, thanks, Pete. Thanks for asking the question. My first band was called Spitfire Boys, and um, Paul Rutherford, who was the singer with the Spitfire Boys, who would later become the other singer in Frankie Goes to Hollywood, with Holly Johnson, who was in my other band, Big in Japan. <laughs> but anyway, coming back to Paul, Paul was a big fan of the Slits and Ariana, especially Ari Up. And um, we eventually got to do a support slot, oh, f- opening for the Slits. Wow! So we got to know them. We'd stayed round at Ari's mum's place on the off, just off the King's Road. Stayed at Nora's house. Nora, Ari's mum, is John Lydon's wife. Yes. But what happened was I'd moved down to London after the Spitfire Boys, and I'd hooked up with a manager, and Frank Silver was his name. Frank was unusually managing a drummer. I was a drummer in London on my own with a manager. (laughs) All he had had to manage was me and my dog. Wow. And Frank suddenly, quite unexpectedly, got the, the job of looking after the slits. And so that's how really that's how I got the uh, the gig. I I I I was making a bit of a slight name for myself because you know the first thing I did when I got to London was sit in Warner Chapel Studios with Glenn Matlock who was the bass player with the Sex Pistols. Right. So I, it was kind of weird. I was sitting there with a, probably the most well-known bass player of that time. Right. helping him out to put some demos together.
2: So so I would say au contraire to peter martin you had actually quite an enviable cv by the age of 20 It doesn't get much bigger than sitting in with like no bass player from the pistols <laughs> that's right that's right all right so question from louis about our clothes from the 80s where do where do we get them where did you get your uh, your clubber?
3: I was thinking about this the other day. Where did we go shopping? And we did quite often. It would be video shoot coming up, or photo session. Right. Uh, me, Susie, and Severin would go down to Covent Garden, um, a, a place called Flip. And okay. it was basically an, right. an outlet for American clothing. I say American because it was a lot of American college campus stuff, like military – like not military – um, college marching bands right so you'll see the jacket that susie wore in. i think the christine maybe not the christine it was one of the videos early on um and that there would be like a yellow brocade with those kind of brass buttons and things and we'd find all this stuff and it was stuff that shouldn't be thrown together but that's what we'd put together and then the big trousers that i was wearing in spellbound Mm. Flying through the air and they looked like parachutes. Right. They they came from flipping Covent Garden. And it was all like really cheap. It's a huge store. Yeah. But you could go in there and root around all day, get ties and shirts. So you could look come out looking like either a preppy college jock or something, or a sporty yeah. person, or somebody out of a play. Um, but there was nothing like it. The colours, uh, the styles, they were they, but- they, it was like it, it, it was cut, it was all from like the 50s and 60s, probably, you
2: know. Okay. Starting off, I used to go down the King's Road, you know, with my mohawk. No, I never had a mohawk. Oh, come on. You did, you did. I saw it. <laughs> but, yeah, I couldn't get enough, uh, you know, stuff to keep it up. Except <laughs> anyway. the Queen's of the Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> the hair, hairspray. The
3: L net. The L the and the, sugar, the soapy sugar water. Yes.
2: Yes, the L net. Didn't Have enough of that, but now I used to go to Johnson's at the bottom end of uh the King's Road, I'd get my leather pants because they had leather pants and they had leather pants that um you that were lined. And if anybody has ever worn a pair of leather pants, you need to have ones that are lined. If they're not lined, don't buy them. I made that mistake once. We were just about to go on our first American tour, and I thought, I'd better buy a pair of leather, new
3: leather pants to look cool. And we've got to clear this up here. That, like, pants mean a little different where you're sitting right now and where I'm sitting.
2: Okay, uh, English to American. Leather pants are what you
3: you were very close to your um, essentials.
2: Yeah, pants in America mean trousers.
3: Ah, okay. you see, over here in Europe, you'd be wearing leather underpants. <laughs>
2: Okay. <laughs> oh, and in London, you probably would be. Yes. So I got me leather trousers. Go on. From, from Johnson's, usually, because they had nice lining inside. So they would move well over your skin. But for this American tour, I didn't have. I'm, it sounds all wrong, doesn't it? But uh, for this one tour, I couldn't find any that I liked in Johnson's. So I, I bought an inferior pair from some other you know covent garden guy and they didn't have a lining in which was okay in the cold weather in london but i got to new york and it was the middle of the summer and it was very hot and i couldn't bend my knees so i couldn't walk upstairs or anything I i had to sort of remove them to go anywhere which was not good and impossible to drum in them as well
3: hasn't been hasn't been the same since
2: well, no, you couldn't even take them off because they're just stuck to you everywhere. And from that day to this, you, you learned how to play the drums standing up. Yeah, right, exactly. The other the other place we went was um Robot, which was on uh King's Road. And I
3: remember Robot, yes.
2: Right. And they they were mates of mine. And so for our first uh, time, we actually had some stage outfits made, and I persuaded Robert, you know. These guys are really good. Let's get them to make us some suits. So they made us each three suits, a black suit, a grey suit. and My favourite one, which actually now is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on permanent ex- exhibition, mm-hmm. blue silk one. And it was lovely. The blue blue silk suit is a nice piece of schmatter, as they say. So
3: you haven't kept – have you or haven't you kept uh... – any of the iconic wardrobe from the 80s? I'm quoting the question here.
2: <laughs> yes, of course I have. I've got my John Richmond uh, jacket still, and it's yeah, I kept all of Well, that you stuff. have.
3: You have? Yeah. you got it?
2: Uh, I've got no leather trousers because they were probably about 28-inch waist, and there's no way on God's green earth I could get into a pair of 28-inch waist trousers at my I, age.
3: Even if you could, we would
2: look a bit dubious, I think. <laughs> yeah, I would look very dubious. <laughs> yeah,
3: I'm not wearing my chaps from the Leatherman in London anymore.
2: <laughs> they were my favourite, I have to say. I gave them to somebody else. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Vol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Spear. Social media, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas Kane. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com I love saying www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com
3: And you can reach us on Instagram,
2: Facebook (laughs) at Curious Creatures Official Twitter at Cure Creatures To find more of the best music podcasts visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram and at doubleelvisfm on Twitter Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2021.